praise song for the day, a poem by Elizabeth Alexander. Each day we go about our business, walking past each other, catching each other's eyes or not, about to speak or speaking. All about us is noise. All about us is noise and bramble, thorn and din, each one of our ancestors on our tongues. Someone is stitching up a hymn, darning a hole in a uniform, patching a tire, repairing the things in need of repair. Someone is trying to make music somewhere with a pair of wooden spoons on an oil drum, with cello, boombox, harmonica, voice. A woman and her son are waiting for the bus. A farmer considers the changing sky. A teacher says, take out your pencils, begin. We encounter each other in words, words spiny or smooth, whispered or declaimed, words to consider, reconsider. We cross dirt roads and highways that mark the will of someone and then others who said, I need to see what's on the other side. I know there's something better down the road. We need to find a place where we are safe. We walk into that which we cannot yet see. Say it plain, that many have died for this day. Sing the names of the dead who brought us here, who laid the train tracks, raised the bridges, picked the cotton and the lettuce, built brick by brick, the glittering edifices that would then keep clean and work inside of. Praise song for struggle, praise song for the day. Praise song for every hand-lettered sign, the figuring it out at kitchen tables. Some live by love thy neighbor as thyself. Others by first do no harm or take no more than you need. What if the mightiest word is love? Love beyond marital, filial, national. Love that casts a widening pool of light. Love with no need to preempt grievance. In today's sharp sparkle, this winter air, Anything can be made, any sentence begun. On the brink, on the brim, on the cusp. Praise song for walking forward in that light. What if the mightiest word is love? And how will we praise song for walking forward in that light? Yesterday, I read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, which is preceded by Paul's advice, I will show you still a better way. We considered William Penn's advice from Some Fruits of Solitude. Let us then try what love will do. Love is the hardest lesson in Christianity, but for that reason, it should be our most care to learn it. I believe that by living into the kingdom of God, we actually do learn the lesson of love. And during the sessions this week, we've been talking about a world in need of boldness of God's, in God's service, a people of faith in search for truth, a spirit that loves us unceasingly and abundantly, a kingdom of God that is now and becoming. We've looked at Jesus's descriptions of the kingdom from the Sermon on the Mount and Paul's letters encouraging the early Christian church in knowing the fruits of the Spirit, <clears throat> excuse me, and in knowing God's abundant love. We're living 
<clears throat> we are living in a time when the power of love and the witness for truth in the public square are very sorely needed. What happens when the covenant of peace, the presence of love, breaks in right here and right now? A few years ago, I went through a pretty intense time of questioning how I could reconcile my political life with my spiritual condition. Uh, In 1995, I ran for and was elected to a four-year term on the local school board, and it was at a time when the town was very divided over a racial balance law that was trying to even the distribution of children among schools within a school district. It was a hugely controversial issue and set up a contentious uh, dynamic for Board of Education meetings in a town where local elected officials typically got along. And then in my work, as I was lobbying members of the Connecticut General Assembly for solutions to homelessness and housing, the longer I did this, and as my network grew deeper, the more I could see uh, the deep influence of power and money on elected officials. And yet, I saw how it was possible for these officials to use that power for good as well as for bad. And I saw how the greed, wealth, and privilege could become the gods people worship in the political sphere. The despair and heartbreak that many of us feel now in naming the brokenness in the world or taking the measure of our distance from God, we see wars, violent conflict, genocide, governmental corruption, flaunting the rule of law, a lack of access to democracy. You see poverty and income inequality, climate change and environmental degradation, racial, ethnic, gender, religious discrimination and inequality. As we've been talking here, white supremacy, racism, sexism. The brokenness and alienation from the divine is not new to our era. In both the Old and New Testaments, we read stories of prophets and of Jesus who confronted the political systems of their times with a vision for the kingdom of God. The book of Amos is a collection of the oracles of Amos' indictment against the wealthy and powerful and God's preference for the poor. Alas for those who lie on beds of ivory and lounge on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but not grieved over the ruin of the poor. For those who might be less familiar with the book of Amos, you probably are familiar with the verse used by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his ministry for addressing inequality and righting oppression when he said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's a passage from the fifth chapter of Amos, verses 21 through 24, where Amos is calling out the worship of the elites. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-falling stream. Amos, Jesus, Paul, 
These stories describe God's view of a world that transforms systems of domination into systems of justice and righteousness. These are stories that describe the possibility of the inbreaking of God's love into the political systems of their day. Can we do no less? In being bold, is being bold the same as being prophetic? I believe it is, <clears throat> and the theme of these sessions calls us to hold that with fear and trembling, to be in awe and wonder of living into God's service. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan contemplative priest, lives in New Mexico and runs a center for contemplation, says this, people who've had any genuine spiritual experience always know they don't know. They are utterly humbled by the mystery. They are in awe before the abyss of it all, wonder at eternity and depth and love, which is incomprehensible to the mind. When I consider that fear and trembling makes me in awe or wonder of the divine, the effect on me is to feel humble. How am I, with humility, being bold in God's service? There is a paradox here to practice humility and to be bold. When I was uh, thinking about the meaning of the word bold in preparation for <clears throat> this, I actually had uh, what some of you will remember is um, because you were alive then, um, the image of the laundry detergent. You remember that like bold, you know, it was really bold letters and bold colors and um, turns out they don't make it anymore or I could have brought a prop. But um, it, it is, I think, a, a question that for many people, bold um, is not always a comfortable word, word, nor is being prophetic a comfortable place to be. What does bold mean? Is it being brash? Is it being loud? Does it mean courage? Or the more likely meaning is probably this idea of prophetic witness. I carry this idea lightly. I still struggle with the idea that I have a prophetic witness, even though I believe that the work that I'm doing is prophetic in nature. What about you? Do you see yourself as prophetic, as bold? Doug Gwynn tells us that the prophet is someone who develops a deep listening relationship with God, or waits, who waits to be called to service, and who speaks and acts out of a message received from the divine. Okay, that fits. That fits with what we've been talking about this week. We are called to deepen our relationship with God, or as George Fox said, we are to stand still in the light. And let me remind you of the title that that writing comes from, To All That Would Know the Way to the Kingdom. The first step to peace is to stand still in the light, which discovers things contrary to it, for power and strength to stand against that nature which the light discovers. For here grace grows, here is God alone, glorified and exalted. Here grace grows, here we gain power and strength. Here we are loving God. At the beginning of this summer, I had the opportunity to participate in the Pacific Northwest uh, Quaker Women's Theology Conference. 
It's a really great name. <laughs> this is a gathering that has occurred every two years since about 1992. And it brings uh, together women from the Northwest Yearly Meeting and Pacific Yearly Meeting, excuse me, North Pacific Yearly Meeting, fellow Quakers who, worships, who worship practices and religious descriptions uh, of how they encounter the divine are quite different. In the earliest years when they started this, it was uh, an incredible emotional and spiritual challenge for the women to talk about how they knew the still small voice, how they saw God in their lives. Two women at this particular retreat earlier this year, two of the women who were part of the earliest retreats read from their letters to each other uh, following those early retreats, where they tenderly spoke to the pain and challenge of finding the language to bridge their differences. Over the course of four days together, one of the sessions we held was on lamentation. We constructed a collective lament in silence by writing responses and passing them down the row so that we could read what each other had said. We lamented what Amos spoke of, and we lamented the fracture within the Religious Society of Friends as women who had been lifelong members of Northwest Yearly Meeting spoke to their heartbreak of leaving that yearly meeting, even as they had been clear and chose to leave. What I took away from that women's retreat is that despite knowing only a handful of those women present, I was among people who loved God. And I realized what a joy it is for me to not only be in the presence of this community that is seeking God, but to be in the presence of people who name their love of God and who tell of their own experience of the kingdom that is here and becoming. Yesterday, a friend asked if I would talk a little bit more about my own spiritual practices, and I'm willing to do that because I think a lot of us have them and we don't talk about them. Uh, I'm, I'm just, one of the takeaways from this yearly meeting will be the exercise that Mary and Judy did when response to what we're doing on immigration and refugees and the fact that um, they didn't know. We hadn't told one another about this ministry or about what we're doing. So here's, here's what I do. Um, uh, I prepare for public talks. <laughs> and this is really one of the hardest things I do right now because as I shared, I feel that it's honestly very difficult to talk about um, these sort of very inner um, experiences of the divine. But I think it's important that we do that with one another. I read the Bible and Quaker writers. I spend time gazing into space. I have a support committee. I try to remember to pray constantly. And that's been something I've learned um, in the last few years. Um, it isn't that I'm constantly aware of praying, but I try to be in a state of praying. When I was uh, traveled in the Middle East, uh, the, one of the remarkable aspects of, the, of just, I've been in about four or five countries in the Middle East, uh, is the call to prayer. Um, that public reminder that this is the time to pray. And some of you have practices like that. Certainly there are um, many orders that have regular calls to prayer. But the idea that there is some reminder throughout the course of our day and evening when we are called to turn to God. I try to see people as the children of God. 
Uh, I know some of you know Deb Fish, who worked for many years for the Friends General Conference. Deb uh, was, probably it was a consultation that they had where she shared a story. No, actually it was at New Haven meeting. She was speaking. And she shared a story about being greeted by someone um, at the door, and every person who walked in was greeted with, welcome, you are a beloved child of God. You are a beloved child of God. To know that, to have that told to us. The other experience that I have that is probably not uncommon, I think for many of us, partly as we age or as we feel busyness, is what I call night waking. Um, That is that time when you wake up at about 2.30 or 3 in the morning and your mind is running and running and it just doesn't seem likely that you're going to fall asleep again. Um, And there was a time when I would get up and start doing things and I realized that this could be a time of prayer, that it could be a time of turning my attention to the divine, a time of just being um, in a day and a week that would otherwise not give me that opportunity. And then, of course, traveling among friends is a true blessing because I get to see a huge community of friends across the country. When I was uh, at Hartford meeting raising my children, um, Jonathan Vogelborn would visit um, in his role as secretary, and he would say to us, because we were a large meeting, go visit, go visit other meetings, it's really important. There was an inner visitation committee at that time and a lot of friends were, were making that effort. I was very reluctant because I loved being at Hartford Meeting. I had kids, I was teaching first day school. Now that I get to travel among friends on a regular basis, I see the amazing joy of experiencing worship with friends across um, the country. And I know there are people here who've had that opportunity across the world uh, through FWCC. I've uh, had the the joy of bringing messages uh, to program friends meeting, West Richmond, Whittier, Jamestown, Winchester. And this is uh, a real um, gift, a real gift. Um, and also to visit with people in their homes. Part of my work is, is raising money. And I will say that um, having listened to the, the challenges here, you know, or the discussion around development, um, it is a gift of ministry to raise money for Quaker organizations because you are talking to people about something that is very intimate to them. And, and you're talking to them about a choice that they are making about something that they value. And so there is a kind of uh, ministry about this that I have recognized and seen. And then, of course, worshiping. Just the opportunity to be in worship on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday afternoon, um, in a yearly meeting. That is uh, a richness that, um, for me, is a, a deep spiritual practice. I will also say, of course, I think people know this, that it's important to pay attention to our consumption, our food and drink intake, but also the intake of spiritual resources. There is a simplicity practice in all of our daily habits. All of us experience information overload and probably work overload or family pressure overload. The desire to know more, do more, be more is baked into our society. So one of our spiritual disciplines has to be to say no, or saying, no, not right now. We have to be clear about our yeses and our noes. This allows us to be bold in God's service and to ask 
things of each other that we might be afraid to ask. I want to refer back to Parker Palmer's work. He talks about the tragic gap, which is standing in the place between what is and what could and should be. He says we have to reach inside ourselves, practice the powers that invite the soul into being. And doing this inner work in community is how we face ourselves. It is essential to do this work in community. Standing in the tragic gap is being in the space between corrosive cynicism and irrelevant idealism. The heart can be broken open with this inner work in communities of trust. And of course, it's important to take our inner life seriously and give it as much attention as we do to the external powers. This inner work can have an impact on the outer world. It can transform institutions. It can transform politics. Be patterns, be examples in all countries, places, islands, nations, wherever you come, that your carriage and life may preach among all sorts of people and to them. Then you will come to walk cheerfully over the world, answering that of God in everyone, whereby in them you may be a blessing and make the witness of, in, of God in them to bless you. As friends, we have tremendous resources. And I'm not talking only of financial resources. We have spiritual resources to be patterns, to be examples. We have a spiritual and moral grounding based on scripture and on our Quaker faith and practice. Our meetings and churches are feeding people who are hungry. We are visiting people who are in detention. And we're trying to prevent people from going into prison. We are providing housing for the homeless. We are welcoming the stranger, immigrants and refugees in our local communities. We seek to love our neighbors without exception, whether those neighbors are undocumented immigrants or Tea Party nationalists. We are building peace in areas of violent conflict. We are pressing our elected officials for disarmament of weapons and an end to war. The more we can be patterns, be examples in all countries, places, islands, and nations, and not only in our Quaker meetings and churches, the more we can witness for truth with love. In places of despair or anger or hateful rhetoric, we can cheerfully step into the void with productive and civil discourse that people are thirsting for. We can, with fear and trembling, be bold in service to God. When I arrived at FCNL, I had this uh, instinct, um, because I, I really had not been involved in FCNL other than through my monthly meeting in setting, I had helped set priorities and I'd heard the reports. But when I got to FCNL, I had this overwhelming sensation that every Quaker should know about FCNL, because it's an amazing organization that Quakers, not me, Quakers have created uh, for 75 years. But the other impulse I had was, we need more Quakers. Um, so I haven't turned into an evangelist yet, but that may be my next phase. I want to leave you with um, a, a, a statement by Thomas Merton um, that speaks to con something we talked about yesterday. Do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start 
to more and more concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. Being with you this week has been a real homecoming for me. Although I haven't been in this annual sessions for seven years, I remember why it is such a joy to be together at annual sessions, to be with people who love God and who know God's love in their lives. My prayer for us as we close these sessions as that is that we will go forth continuing to learn the lessons of love that will enable us to be bold in God's service.